Hey there, and welcome to the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Oscar-nominated movies, or die trying. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you're all doing well out there, had a good holidays, settling back maybe into the spring of things at work or school or otherwise. Uh, and of course, with the holidays behind us, we are ever closer to awards season. Um, now, for this week's episode, we again are bringing on a guest from last year, uh, my college friend Alex Atienza, who works in the industry as a professional film editor. Uh, he was on last year for the episode about Dune, West Side Story, Tragedy of Macbeth, and Nightmare Alley. Uh, this year, we're back with two of the same directors actually, and another major blockbuster, um, Pinocchio by Guillermo del Toro, The Fablements by Steven Spielberg, and Top Gun Maverick starring Tom Cruise. Uh, we also talk about Tar starring Kate Blanchett by Todd Field, as well as the a small bonus discussion on Indian film RRR. This, continue, this is the second of three episodes talking about potential best picture contenders for this year. Now, much like last week, I had a bit of trouble figuring out exactly what this week's theme would be, but after an hour and a half of talking it over, uh, we ended up deciding that these were all passing projects by uh, these auteurs associated with these films. Now, before we get into this week's episode, a bit of housekeeping. First off, as this episode comes out, we are only a couple of days from the Academy of Death Racers uh, Film Festival, the second annual edition of that. So make sure you go over to AODR.net, sign up for a pass. It definitely helps us out. And, you know, there are a couple of films that were shortlisted uh, for the uh, sorts categories this year that will be playing at the film festival. So if you definitely want to get ahead of those uh, in the hopes that they end up getting nominated, definitely be sure you go and check it and sign up so you can watch those. Uh, and then as far as this podcast goes, a couple of weeks ago, I put out a survey for the Academy of Death Races community on the Discord on here about which films from 2022 work we would consider the best film and also which films from 2023 were the most anticipated. Um, the lists were uh, unranked except for the number one film that people wanted to cause the best film or the most anticipated film uh, so that we could compare which film simply sewed up the most, you know, sight and sound list style, and then which one is explicitly listed as the first, if there was a difference. In this case, for the number one film, there was not. Um, after 30 responses, including myself, Jeff from last week's episode, Alex from this week's, and then the other planned guests for the rest of the season, uh, the results are in. First off, with the best films of 2022. Now, there were 11 total uh, I'm going to go over since number 8 through 11 had 9 appearances across all responses. Um, these were Babylon, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, Marcel de Selwood's Susan, and The Batman. Uh, in 7th through 10th place, 7th uh, place with 10 appearances, my bad, uh, we had Top Gun Maverick. Uh, in 4th through 6th place with 11 appearances each, we had Nope, Tar, and The Fablemans. In third place, 16 total appearances on the list, on the responses, we had After Sun. In second place, barely squeaking it out with 17 appearances, Banshees of Inisherin. And then in first place, with a whopping 23 mentions, we have everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, like I mentioned, this is the same as the people who called out the... Um, Hold out the, uh, the, the, the everything you have all at once as their best film of the year. Um, and out of the 30 respondents, 10 total had everything ever all at once as their best film, followed by six for After Sun. A documentary, All the Beauty and Blood said, uh, had, um, you know, uh, 
uh, also did not get mentioned uh, in this in the top 11 list they mentioned, but two of them called it the best film out of five total mentions. Uh, the donkey movie EO from Poland also had two mentions, though those were the only two people to mention the film at all. Uh, Babylon, Pinocchio, and Tower we already mentioned. They all had one person call them the best film of the year. Uh, Dana's film Close had one person call it the best out of four total mentions. Mad God also had one person call it the best, three total mentions. And then the rest explicitly called out as the best film were Brother, Brother Pleasure, The Menu, The Whale, and The Woman King, uh, all which were the only mention of this film, uh, of these films uh, in, among all the responses. Notably, uh, Banshees of Inisirin, which got second place by total mentions, 17 total ahead of Aftersun, actually didn't show up as anyone's favorite film of the year. Um, overall, there were 99 films mentioned in total. Now, looking to the future for this year, 2023, um, you know, while the, interestingly, there were fewer films and general mentions, which I think makes sense given that, you know, some of the international films or films that maybe don't have a firm release date yet, uh, we don't know yet at this point in time. Uh, there are only 79 films mentioned on this list as opposed to 99. Um, on the flip side, though, you know, there were only 14 films uh, mentioned within, you know, the explicit top 10 list for best film of 2022. This, uh, for most anticipated, there were 17 films, so a lot more films that we, you know, maybe have have hopes for um though one person did mention the last of us tv show coming to hbo which not a movie but i'll, I'll count it um anyway working away once again from 11th place uh by total mentions in 10th and 11th place uh we have with six mentions each cocaine bear uh, which is a movie and the timothy salome wonka film uh, in ninth place, we have Bo is Afraid, the Ari Aster Joaquin Phoenix film with seven mentions. Uh, Wes Anderson's film Asteroid City is in eighth place with nine mentions. Uh, Hayao Miyazaki comes in uh, in sixth, uh, in seventh place with ten uh, with ten mentions for How Do You Live. Uh, Scorsese's next film, Kills of the Flower Moon, is in sixth place with twelve total mentions. Uh, Tom Cruise is back on the list also with fourteen mentions uh, in fifth place uh, for Mission Impossible. Reckoning Part 1. Uh, tied for third and fourth place are Dune 2 uh, from Denis Villeneuve and Oppenheimer with, from Chris Nolan. Um, and then the kind of repeating, I guess, uh, last year's Oscars. Um, and then uh, in second place, we have animated film Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse with 17 total mentions. And then with 24 total mentions, uh, a full two out of three respondents, we have the Barbie movie as the most anticipated film of 2023. Uh, looking at the explicitly called films, Barbie is also uh, the most anticipated film, Eight total out of eight, 30 respondents, uh, followed by Dune 2 with four mentions, Kill of the Flowers Moons with three, and then Oppenheimer with two. Uh, notably, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, Mission Impossible, Asteroid City, Cocaine Bear, and Wonka weren't anyone's most anticipated of the year, but still made it to that top 11 by total mentions. Uh, the rest of the films are, you know, films that only had one mention um, as the most anticipated for anyone. Uh, upcoming French film Passages, set to debut at Sundance, had five total mentions and only had one as the, as the most explicit. Uh, Iron Man and the Wasp had four total mentions. Guardians of the Galaxy 3, also four mentions. Uh, same for uh, Indiana Jones 5 and The Color Purple. Uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance had two total mentions, as did Night Bits. Uh, and then The Bottoms was an upcoming team sex comedy with Elizabeth Banks. Uh, inside, a horror film uh, starring Willem Dafoe. Uh, it's only Life After All, a film looking at folk rock band The Indigo Girls coming to Sandance all round out the explicitly most anticipated film with only a single mention, um, again, along with that Last of Us TV show.
Now, for me personally, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to expose anyone else's list, but I will expose my own list. So, um, kind of, in, kind of an interesting case though here because I ended up actually, uh, I, I personally have two lists. I have a list of the films that my head says is the best film of the year. You know, the most best executed, best crafted films, and then also, you know, which films are uh, I would say that my heart responds to. You know, which are my actual favorites of the year that I that I really enjoyed watching. Uh, so, as far as the ones that I would say are the best of the year, you know, these also include anything I saw in 22. So a lot of films that appeared in last year's Oscars. Uh, we have my best of the year, Everything Everywhere All at Once, uh, followed by Banshees of Inisarian, Drive My Car, Pinocchio, Inuo, Mad God, Nightmare Alley, Power of the Dog, Tar, and Worst Person in the World. Um, again, a lot of Oscar contenders. Um, and as far as my favorite films, again, Everything Everywhere All at Once was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once was my favorite film of all, uh, followed by Coda, Chippendale, Rescue Ranger, Glass Onion, Marcel the Cell with Susan, Mitchells vs. the Machines, Prey, RRR, Sin Ultraman, and Top Gun Maverick. So as you can tell, I was one of the 10 people to put Everything, Everywhere, All at Once as my best film of 2022 overall. And then as far as, you know, the films I was most anticipating next year, uh, my number one most anticipated film is Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I was that one person who mentioned it there. Um, you know, it's my favorite Marvel franchise, and you know, I'm definitely looking forward to see the send-off to the crew there. Uh, my other films uh, on the list, in no particular order, uh, Cocaine Bear, uh, the D Dungeons & Dragons movie, uh, Suzume, which is a uh, you know, Makoto Shinkai's anime film, which technically released in Japan last year, but is coming to the States in April, uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, Oppenheimer, How Do You Live, Dune 2, and Chicken Run 2. Uh, in any case, though, that is uh, enough housekeeping at this point. Uh, you know, this is a fairly long episode. Uh, you know, as uh, Alex and I dive into the ins and outs of Pinocchio, which you know at this point of, of release, you know, may not be a major Best Picture contender, but was potentially at the time, uh, and also will certainly get nominated for at least two categories. So, still a safe watch for your death race. Um, the Fablemans, Tar, and Top Gun Maverick, um, as well as the side of RRR, which again I don't think is a real serious contender at this point for Best Picture, but I think what will was is only on a lot of people's top film of the late, of the uh, year list. Um, it didn't make uh, the Academy of Death Racers community's uh, top 11, but it actually came in at number 12 by most mentions, so definitely up there. Uh, as always, the numbers I quote from Gold Derby in this episode are probably a couple weeks out of date since I recorded this uh, a couple weeks ago, just when Avatar was coming out. Um, so, you know, th uh, forgive those th those discrepancies there. And then we also will be talking about spoilers for all of these films, so you have been warned. In any case, let's hop right in. today uh everyone enjoyed his episode last year on west side story and several other films uh my college friend alex uh who is a professional editor uh, in the film industry is back on to talk about film uh alex atienzo welcome back to the oscars death race podcast thank you i'm so flattered that you reached out to me a second time and i'm really glad that people enjoyed listening to our last our last episode together so I'm really excited to be back yeah, so you know, obviously, you know, this is a chance to catch up as well. So you know, you had a you had a busy year this year. So you know, I know you last year we talked you were you know doing some uh, some freelance work for editing and stuff. Uh, but now you you actually uh, are a, cert a certified card carrying guild member, isn't that right? That is right. So earlier this year, uh, a friend of mine who is also from Penn hired me to edit a feature that he's been working on, and lucky enough, there was going to be shooting in New York, so it's an East Coast production, and the 
credentials that are required to to join the East Coast Editors Guild are a bit lower than it's what's required to join the West Coast Editors Guild. In order to join, you simply need to be offered a, a job on a guild production. Whereas for the West Coast, you have to have a certain number of hours of experience before you're allowed to apply. And so fortunately, my friend who I really admire as an artist and who we discuss uh, films with a lot, uh, liked my work and he wanted me to work on edit his film. And so that I worked on this past fall. So I went up to Philadelphia, which is where we did most of the director's cut. And I stayed there through uh, September. And now I'm back in Maryland. Nice. Are you, are you able to say what film it is that you worked on? Um, I don't want to give too much away. I don't only want to reveal the title, but it is a uh, horror drama uh, about a uh, family and a young girl. So one, some of the films that I think we discussed a lot while you know discussing the style and tone of the film are things like, like The Witch, some A24 uh, horror films. The high concept deals with very much with trauma. And I think that's what we went into the film trying to accomplish. Awesome. Well, you know, you'll, you you can tell me which film it is off off the air, uh, and then I'll keep an eye out for, for next next year. And then definitely, uh, we'll let people know, you know, in my off season episodes when your film ends up coming out, uh, so we can go. I'll give it a watch and support. Um, but yeah, and obviously, you know, aside from your working film, which again, congratulations on on joining the guild. Um, you know, it's obviously been a very very busy year for film this year, just in terms of watching a lot of really good stuff. Um, you know, when I pitched you, you know, coming on this episode, and you definitely had some films that you definitely wanted to talk about, which we'll get to. Um, but can you just, I guess, for folks who maybe didn't hear last year's episode, maybe this is the first season listening to the Death Race podcast, um, what are your types of films that you're particularly interested in, in watching? Sure. So I'm, you know, I'm the sort of person who really loves all sorts of movies. It's always hard to kind of pinpoint with, you know, what my taste is because I'm really receptive to many different genres um, and many different films from all sorts of you know, parts of the world. And But I think if I had to, like, list what's currently uh, – on my letterboxed accounts front page. What's on there is Rushmore by Wes Anderson, Minority Report by Steven Spielberg, Francis Ha by Noah Baumbach, and Amadeus by Milos Forman. Um, so very much interested in the sort of more um, quirky or understated American independent films, um, as well as the more uh, dramatic and philosophical uh, films as well. Awesome. I know. I know. Last year when we talked, you were uh, really looking forward to a souvenir part two. If I remember, was the film you were looking forward to most from this year? I think. As a matter of fact, for Christmas, one of my titas gave me as a present the uh, Blu-ray uh, DVD set of the souvenir part one and part two that A twenty four just started selling a few months ago, and I'm very grateful that I have it. And I really look forward to rewatching it. Yeah, he has like this big smile on his face right now, just showing it to me on video, which you guys can't 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 see. But you know, definitely, uh, you know, and we'll we'll talk more, I guess, later about the films that you're looking forward to for 2023. But um, right now, we're here to talk about uh, the films uh, that um, you know from this past year that you know, like I like like for this series of, of episodes are you know, well, most of them are likely to be from some best picture contenders. Um, we had some scheduling issues that led us to you know not be able to watch all the films I wanted to cover for this episode. Um, both of us got. COVID 
COVID, uh, which is not fun. So that less puts back to the recording of this episode. But, um, you know, most of these are films that Alex really wanted to talk about for sure. Um, and, you know, a couple others that, 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 that we ended up watching that we both ended up enjoying. So, um, you know, you could say most of these are maybe current favorites in specific categories. Um, it would be a, an upset for them to at least not win something, um, at least at this point in time. So, um, you know, uh, you know, obviously we'll have a little bit of a spoiler discussion here. We don't want to hold anything back in these discussion of these films. Um, but the, but they are going to be in order. Um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, um, uh, Steven Spielberg's The Fableman, which, you know, you liking Minority Report, you'll have, probably have a bit to say about Spielberg. Um, Todd Field's Tar, uh, and then... Uh and then uh, Top Gun Maverick starring Tom Cruise. And then, you know, if we have time at the end, we'll, we'll throw in a little bit of RRR in there as well. Um, but yeah, spoiler alert for those films um, in that order. So um, let's go ahead and hop into this first film. So originally we were going to try to watch uh, The Whale. Um, but, you know, again, due to scheduling logistics, we weren't able to get to that in time. So we ended up settling uh, on the weekend we were going to initially record is agreeing to watch Pinocchio on Netflix, which is uh, Guillermo del Toro's, um, you know, stop motion uh, animated uh, love letter, you know, ad- adaptation of the classic tale. Um, you know, this is outside of the top 12 of Gold Derby's Best Picture. It's currently ranked, um, I believe, uh, you know, somewhere like 20th or so at this point. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, you know, the the other 12 films are in top 12 or films I will have watched by the time this episode have come out, but not by the time we record this. Um, but that said, you know, based on many, you know, the AFI, um, NBR, and other film critics, Pinocchio has been on many people's, you know, top film of the year. Um, another consideration for this was After Sun, which also wasn't available at the time we were originally going to record this. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, Pinocchio ended up being uh, kind of the choice we wanted to do. It, it basically is locked in to be uh, the best animated fe- one of the best animated feature contenders, if not winner for this year. So, um, you know, enough rambling there. You know, from Academy Award winner Guillermo del Toro comes the story we all know and love of the wooden boy whose nose glows when he tells the lies, but not in the way you've seen it before. Um, this passing project was put together through stop motion animation across multiple countries and it features the voice work of Evan, Evan Hello There McGregor uh, as the cricket, uh, David Student out of bed Bradley as Geppetto uh, Kate Lydia Tara Blanchett um, Finn Stranger Things Wolfhard Ron Hellboy Perlman uh, Christoph Au Revoir Sosana Waltz Tom Spongebob Kenny and Tilda I can't come up with a funny nickname for the, for her uh, Swinton um, as well as the score by the legendary Alexander Desplat um, like we said it's not a front runner on Gold Derby for best picture but it is currently according to Gold Derby first for best animated feature eighth for best adapted screenplay Fifth for best score, fourth for best original song, which uh, Xiao Papa, which has been shortlisted um, as of a couple of days ago, and then it's also been shortlisted for best sound, though not necessarily competitive for that. Um, so yeah, what 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 makes Pinocchio interesting to talk about is they've actually you know in the post expansion era since they expanded to five films uh, beyond five films for best picture, there've only been two animated films nominated for best picture. Up and Toy Story Three, which obviously are both Pixar films, um, but you know the, their route to to um, best picture to best uh, picture is kind of similar to what Pinocchio has, right? Um, they both had uh, they both had adapted screenplay, which Pinocchio has an outside shot at, um, and then also uh, Toy Story Three had original song, um, whereas Up also had, I believe, score as well, um, and both of them also had sound. So you know there is a chance for best picture given you know a, an above one above the line screenplay nomination in the couple of technical sound-based nominations below the line, as well as being the front runner for animated feature. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not a sur thing, but, but it's, a, it's a slight one. 
Um, it doesn't hurt, again, that the reviews have been excellent. Um, it debuted at the BFI London Film Festival in October, and then in the U.S. at the AFI Fest in November. Had a limited Netflix release uh, on, November, uh, on November 9th in theaters, uh, and then released on the streaming platform December 9th. Metacritic has it at 79, Rotten Tomatoes at 97 critics, 85 audience, and it has 4.1 stars on Letterboxd as of 69,000 reviews. Um, another reason I also wanted to talk about this is, you know, in this past week or so after we got over COVID, my wife and I actually went to the Museum of Modern Art, um, where there's actually an exhibit of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, so you can actually see some of the sets and puppets, which I'll talk about in a little bit, um, but I've ramble on a little bit enough here uh, alex what were your thoughts uh when you ended up seeing pinocchio it's funny because i feel like there's not that much original programming on netflix that i think appeals to me but i did reopen my account specifically to watch this as well as glass onion and white noise so um i've been pleased with some of their programming this year uh and funny thing is uh this is actually the second high profile pinocchio film to be released in 2022 and the third to be released in the last three years. So the first one was the 2019 Italian language adaptation by Matteo Groni. Which, which, got nominated, which got nominated for, I believe, like makeup and, and some costume effects as well, right? That was part of the death race uh, that year, which was, uh, there, there are many memes about the that Pinocchio adaptation in the Discord server I'm on for that, but uh, carry on. Yes, and then so obviously the second one being the Disney live action remake earlier this year, which was Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks. And so I was never really paying that close attention uh, to Pinocchio, but uh, whenever I did hear about it, I kept confusing the three of them. <laughs> um, hey, and I haven't. Don't, don't put disrespect on the polysore adaptation of Pinocchio, which is uh, basically a, a Russian language rip, a, a, a dub of this Russian version of Pinocchio, which definitely should not be watched. But uh, you know that that that's that 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 aside. Go, carry on again. <laughs> yeah, and so there seems to be this Pinocchio renaissance happening for some reason. Um, just within the last couple of years. Uh, I haven't seen the first two that I mentioned, the uh, the Italian one or the Disney one. But uh, just watching this one alone, I do feel like that there are a lot of things that certainly make it stand out. And so I'm going to walk through a couple of the things that I did like about it. Um, so first of all, obviously, I think the stop motion and its use of stop motion in relation to the story formed a large part of the appeal to me. I think Del Toro's choice to use stop motion gives the film a self-referential quality so that by having all of the characters be puppets, the film links the human characters to Pinocchio in a way that underscores the mortality in a way that the other adaptations do not, right? So it's almost by almost by having all of the characters be uh, inanimate objects, it kind of makes the, it kind of says that you know, we all are Pinocchio in some sort of way. So the production design, characters and sets beautiful to look at. They feel tangible and they feel lived in. And uh, the storytelling is very disciplined and efficient, which seems to be a byproduct of animation itself, right? You really have to plan everything out in advance. And I think that makes everything a lot more um, cohesive. And I think it, the film also achieved this very difficult task of creating a tone that's simultaneously distinctive and also appropriate to the story that's being told. So what, what I really love about Del Toro's adaptation is that I think it recognizes the fundamental weirdness of the story's premise, right? So the prologue places grief at the center of the story and makes it the protagonist. Geppetto's son is killed, and then he builds Pinocchio essentially as a surrogate. And Pinocchio becomes a personification of Geppetto's grief, literally transforming it into this unruly child, and Geppetto is ultimately ostracized by his community for it. And I find that 
uh, metaphor really wonderful and very potent. Yeah, yeah um, I, I remember I remember reading about the film, and he said he was really inspired by uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? So the idea of you know this uh, you know this this craftsman who ends up creating you know this artificial artificial being, basically, right? And kind of like what is what is what has he unleashed on this world? It's like you know one of the things I really found you know very Guillermo del Toro is kind of like that that kind of like uh existential nature of like Pinocchio literally cannot die like he'll die and he comes back to life and then he'll come and then he'll die again and come back to life in like this groundhog day type situation right it's like is it a curse or is it is it like something is it like a curse or a blessing right and and how they play with that is is, is really really different again like you said from from anything that had, that had been before right I, I think the fact that Pinocchio cannot die actually for me it felt like a disservice to the story because i i don't it felt like plot armor a tiny bit and i'll get to that in a bit later when i talk about the writing but i think i would agree with the frankenstein analogy i love the scene where we meet pinocchio for the first time and geppetto um finds him i think hiding in the attic right and he's really genuinely freaked out by it um, yeah, he's, like, he's like crawling around, like 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 crawling himself, like pulling up on his back, or like in these inhuman poses. Again, very much like the creature work that Del Toro is known for. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I think um, to round out some of the things that I really loved about it, obviously the music. I do feel like that's one category in which would definitely be front runner, and that's what stood out to me immediately when I watched it. Uh, I saw a short documentary about the making of the film, in which one of the crew members described it as not a musical, but a film with musical moments. And I, I, I might agree, the musical sequences are quite short um, and a bit slight to develop the character substantially the way you might meet with a full-blown musical. But at the same time, I still feel like it uh, contributed to the story in a way that felt uh, satisfying. And I also feel like it, the film the film's musical numbers are a confirmation that Ewan McGregor should have had a much bigger musical career than he did. I believe he should have had the kind of career that Hugh Jackman had. It speaks a lot that Better Tomorrows, which plays over Pinocchio's credits, is only the second best credits song that Ewan McGregor has sang. The first best is actually Here's to Love from the 2004 film Down With Love, where he sings a duet with Renee Zellweger, who just got off Chicago. Oh, wow. Um, I think that, you know, that definitely shows off his talent, and I kind of wish I did see uh, McGregor in more musicals. And I think that it definitely showed here. Yeah, going going back to the script, right? So you you were talking like you know, you're not so about like the 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 script as like the 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 death the death immunity, right? He comes back to life as like plot armor. I would say like I found that it was a refreshing change. I think on the Pinocchio formula, right? Like the goal of most Pinocchio formulas is like, oh, what does he want? He wants to become a real boy. How does he become a real boy? He becomes someone who can die. Right, um, and and it's it's similar to that, right? There there are these analogs to the original story, right? Like you know, you still have obviously the the circus the circus master or whatever who he he runs off with. He still abandons school, but like you know the the fun like the fun carnival world, right? Where they turn into donkeys is exchanged for you know this 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 youth military training camp basically, right? As as the analog for that, and so here, right, it's like the goal isn't for him to you know. Is to is, is he doesn't actually at the end of the at the end of the story actually become a real boy. He still, at the end of the day, is a wooden boy. But it's it's that choice that he makes explicitly to give up his uh his his immunity his 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 uh, immortality that that essentially is the actualization of of his his arc basically. 
Right. I, I think that makes sense now that I think a bit more about it. But at the same time, I think that when I, you know, when I entered this film's world, I was entering it originally from Geppetto's perspective. And I was really interested in the conflict between his, um, you know, struggle to uh, overcome his grief and trying to deal with uh, Pinocchio himself, right? So taking a step back, you mentioned that it adheres um, in some ways to the original text with the circus and with the whale, and then deviates by taking certain liberties. Um, as a side note, you know, uh, what was really striking to me was that it set it changed the setting to the 1930s. So, you know, it, the film is set against this backdrop of the rise of fascism in Mussolini's Italy. And it's not unlike Pan's Labyrinth, for instance, which is set during the Spanish Civil War. So he kind of uses it as an opportunity to revisit some very familiar themes. Fun, fun fact to, fun fact to uh, interject with your interjection. When I saw the MoMA exhibit, right? So they had the, uh, the, the set of the church, actually, right? And apparently in the stained glass uh, of one of the churches, they actually have like images from Guillermo del Toro's other works, including like the guy from Pan's Labyrinth with like the, the, hand, the eyes in his hand. Like that's like an Easter egg you can see in one of the, in the glass, stained glass window, which was really cool to see in person. Right. And um, that was, I think... Um, all of that was very much on brand for him, right? This uh, coming of age during wartime. But ha I think the reason I felt the film in some ways could have been more dramatically satisfying is because the metaphor that I talked about earlier regarding grief that made the first act really moving, I think is gradually abandoned as the story progresses, right? So, um, you know, at the beginning of the film, Geppetto resents Pinocchio for his existence, uh, but he can't also quite bring himself to disown him. So he's begrudgingly forced to accept him into his life. And then Blue Fairy comes along and trusts Sebastian Cricket with Pinocchio, and Sebastian becomes this ineffectual custodian slash reluctant guardian. So I think the opening scenes of the film establish a conflict as being between these like three different personalities, with Pinocchio's existence being a metaphor for, Pinoc uh, for Geppetto's grief. That ultimately, I think, foreshadows their mutual transformation, right? Geppetto overcomes his resentment of Pinocchio, Sebastian overcomes his reluctance, and Pinocchio overcomes his stubbornness. And that all sort of um, means coming to terms with the said tragedy. However, I think that when Pinocchio escapes the circus, and then he escapes the fascists, and uh, Geppetto's son, uh, from the beginning of the film, kind of fades into the background and ceases to have much influence on the narrative. So I, I think that we lose a bit of track of what Pinocchio's relationship with Geppetto represents. Compare, for instance, uh, Pinocchio with Finding Nemo, right? The journey Marlin and Nemo takes transforms both of them. Marlin overcomes his fears of the world, and Nemo realizes his father's love for him. So they meet in this middle ground and reconcile. Uh, and on the other hand, with Pinocchio, Geppetto searches for Pinocchio, but when he gets trapped in the whale, his journey, his journey kind of dead ends. And that, and until he is reunited with Pinocchio completely by chance. So when we see, and furthermore, we see Geppetto, we see Geppetto inside the whale, and he's just having the time of his life. So it was, tonally, I felt a little uh, lost as to what we're supposed to take away from this, the last uh, act of the film. Um, on top of that, I also think that Pinocchio spends most of the film a bit blasé to some of the misfortunes that befall him. Um, and then at the end, I'm not sure he takes uh, any of them any more seriously than he did at the beginning. So it's a bit hard to say what either Geppetto or Pinocchio 
uh, are transformed. Yeah, I would say, you know, to that, I think, yeah, Geppetto kind of completes his transformation at the point when he realizes, you know, when 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 the when Sebastian Jake forgets, like, you know, you wanted him to be Carlo, but he's not Carlo, he's Pinocchio, and then he's and then Geppetto then goes on to chase the chase after Pinocchio, right? Like that is essentially at the point at which Geppetto has more or less fully realized himself, basically, right? So you know. I I get I get where you I get where you're coming from from, from that, but um, as far as you know, I guess I guess to to wrap up the thought on Pinocchio, since so we because we don't go too long on this episode, um, you know, what are your thoughts? I guess any other closing thoughts? You know, I'm, I'm anything maybe specifically about uh, stop motion animation and how much more or less you'd like to see of that uh, in the animated feature category. Like you mentioned earlier, uh, only two recent animated films have been nominated for Best Picture. Um, I'm just realizing there's also a third, I think, Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, back Beauty and when the Beast, originally... back when they were only five Best Picture films. So I, I, I tend to stop thinking stuff before they expanded it out, just because it makes those statistics more comparable. Anyway, carry on. Um, and I, I think there are a few other categories where it stands a really good chance. As I mentioned, you know, original score, original song. Um, many, many animated features recently have been appear to have been nominated in both of those categories. Uh, obviously, Alexandre Desplat for his Lush Orchestral Spore. There's definitely a spot reserved for it. It's worth noting that the two previous animated films that Desplat has scored are both stop motion. It was Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox, and both of them are directed by Wes oh, Anderson. Actually, I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think of this this idea? So, you know, you obviously have Wes Anderson, who again, one of your favorite favorite directors, um, making his own take on an on an, an animated film through stop motion, and you have Guillermo del Toro's take on an animated stop motion. Like, how how do you feel about like you do you want more directors to do something along that lines, or is it something that only these two these two unique visionaries could do? You think? I always would love to see more stop motion animation. Animation is like one of the mediums where. I just still can't comprehend how any of it gets made whatsoever just because of how tedious and complicated it is. I always end up usually impressed by what I see. Love to see more stop motion uh, animation represented. Wes Anderson's case is really interesting because I think my stance is a little more contrarian, which is that I think the appeal of Wes Anderson was seeing live action people behave like animation. And so you have this um, cartoonish caricatures but with flesh and blood, right? And I think that, to me, was slightly more interesting than when he has the complete control of animation itself. Still lovely to watch. Love Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's a, it's exact, it's the you know pinnacle of his style, I think, um, because it, animation obviously affords uh, you know very meticulous directors like Wes Anderson the control that they need in order to realize their vision. But in general, I would say yes. I I think you know I watched. Uh, all of the Wallace and Gromit short films for the first time. And I was just absolutely blown away by the wrong trousers. I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Yeah, I think I think you bring up Wes Anderson, like his style works for Woodstock Most and Guillermo del Toro's, particularly his like creature work and like his his vision his vision on how to create these kind of almost magical realist worlds right i think really works well in in anime in stop motion in animation in general and stop motion specifically i think for guillermo Toro, it has like that that weight to it um for the characters and i think uh, it also the medium of animation allows him to be a little more disciplined and simpler with the story so for instance when i saw nightmare alley last year it, it felt to me like the coverage was a little um loose so when you end, end up doing animation, it, I think the visual story becoming, becomes a little more streamlined because, like I said, you're really forced to do that. Um, and I think that ultimately benefits, benefits Del Toro a lot. 
Okay. Uh, we have to move on to the next film, but uh, I think you'll enjoy talking about this one. So the first one that really is competitive for, be- for best picture we'll talk about this episode is The Fablemans. Uh, so, you know, from the master of the blockbuster himself, Steven Spielberg, it's a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age drama told through the, through the eyes of Sammy Fableman, uh, who explores how films can help him see the truth about his dysfunctional family and those around him. Um, the film features Gabriel LaBelle as Sammy, Michelle Williams as his mother, Paul Dano as his father, and Seth Rogen and Judd Hurst in other supporting roles. According to Gold Derby, it is currently ranked second for Best Picture, first for Director, third for Supporting Actress for Michelle Williams. Oh, sorry, third for, for Lead Actress, um, even though I, I think she should be supporting. But anyway, they're calling her Lead Actress uh, for Michelle Williams. Uh, third and fifth for Supporting Actor for Paul Dano and Judd Hurst, respectively. Third for Original Screenplay. First for cinematography by longtime collaborator Janusz Kaminski, sixth for costume design, third for editing, fourth for production design, and then first for the score by the legendary John Williams. Um, it had its premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, where it took home the coveted People's Choice Award. Had a limited release from Universal November 11th before expanding to 600 theaters this past Thanksgiving. It went to PVOD on December 13th and currently has an 84 Metacritic, 91 critics, 82 audience on Rotten Tomatoes, and 4.2 stars on Letterboxd out of 27. 7,000 reviews. So a little bit ago, like before I I, I I had previously had a podcast, which is kind of defunct now, but I called it Filmography in Focus, where I watched, uh, you know, tried to watch all the filmographies of specific directors each month. Uh, Spielberg has just such a huge filmography that I actually had to limit his episode to like Spielberg from the 19, I think like 70s and 80s, basically. Uh, so the kind of like his earlier work, right? The, the stuff that we that'd be most closest to his time growing up, you know, in, in, in Sammy Fableman Sue. So looking back, there's actually a lot I can see how that kind of influenced his take, particularly on family, I think, um, and how that influenced his way, earlier works. Yeah. By the way, did you end up seeing 1941? I did, I did. Because I feel like that's the one Spielberg film that people will only watch when they try to f- complete his filmography. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this, 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 I think this this says a light a lot of light on Spielberg uh, and kind of like where he's coming from, especially when he was making these films. And you know, I think there are parts of it that I liked, parts of it I found a little bit weaker. But um, what were your thoughts? I think again, as someone who who has a Spielberg film in the top four on other box. Yeah, I mean. Uh... I mentioned Minority Report being in my top four. I feel like, you know, we're always lucky to have uh, two Spielberg movies in two years. Coming so soon straight out of West Side Story, he's so prolific. There are many years where he's released um, multiple films. You know, Minority Report came out the same year as Catch Me As You Can, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List. So I'm glad that we have that uh, much to kind of dive into, as you, Apollo, yourself noted. Um, Just... To give a little context on my own stance on his complete filmography, I think he's obviously one of the greatest of all time, directed many of my favorite films. But I would say that many of his 2010s films have fared a, a little uh, less strongly than some of his earlier ones, which is why I, I haven't really watched many of them. And it was only when West Side Story came around that I was drawn back to it. Um, so as you know, and as you mentioned, uh, the film is very much heavily based on Spielberg's childhood, some of the formative events, the divorce, the discovery of filmmaking, being bullied at school, and the first girlfriend. And so much of the film is spent recounting each of these in very episodic fashion. It's almost like a string of anecdotes. Uh, and all of those happen in parallel with his growth as a filmmaker. But I also feel like that results in the film feeling a little expository. And I think there are two challenges that the film faces. Like the first challenge is that 
everyone knows that Sammy Fableman grows to become an acclaimed filmmaker because he's an obvious stand-in for Spielberg himself. The second challenge is that a lot of us who are interested in the biography of Spielberg know that Sammy's parents eventually divorce. Now, I think my issue with Fableman's is that it does little to shake our certainty in either of those outcomes, right? either by threatening Sammy's faith in his calling or hinting that his parents will stay married. Right? There's a brief moment where Sammy says that he gives up filmmaking, but that's path is hardly considered as a serious alternative. Um, there's also a touching moment where Sammy's father goes to uh, tries to encourage Sammy to cheer up his mother, but that moment kind of comes and goes. And I think that without that uncertainty, the film's interest lies almost exclusively in its being a personal recollection of the person who directed it. And my feeling is that someone who is uninterested in Spielberg's literal childhood would come away from the film without much insight into either of the subjects it professes to portray, which is art and families. So I guess link it to his earlier films. I think that the family dynamic that was the subject of Spielberg's previous movies is now the text itself in The Fablemans. So broken families are very much a recurring theme throughout the filmography. Obviously, early hits like Close Encounters, E.T., Last Crusade, but also almost all of his 2000 movies, which is my favorite period of Spielberg, AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, War of the Worlds, all deal with these very troubled and uh, fractured families. But the families in these films are even more dysfunctional and troubled than the one in Fableman's, but they also leave more unsaid. And that's why I find them so powerful. So when you get the Fableman's and that subtext becomes the text, the theme is now the story itself. And the only way you can interpret the film is in the most literal way possible, which is rarely satisfying to me. Yeah, uh, I was, I'll, 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 I'll say that like, yeah, I think, you know, my takeaway was that like, it's a good film, I think. Uh, I don't know if it was by anyone aside from Spielberg, right? If, if someone else were to make almost the exact same film, I don't know if there would be as much acclaim for this film, as as, as bad as that sounds, right? Like There's a kind of a morbid joke in here also of like, you know, men will make Men will men will have a six decade long career in making films rather than go to therapy, basically, right? Like this feels this feels like Spielberg trying to work after all these years through his own trauma or whatever experiences he had as a kid growing up, right? I mean, you know, Sindler's List, which I watched recently for the first time, you know, clearly I, I see a lot of, of of things coming from there. You know, his 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 growing up and ha receiving anti Semitic bullying, right? Which which Sammy undergoes here, I can tell that definitely had an impact on why he was you know so passionate on how he decided to approach um you know Sindler's list when, when that came time for him to make that right so you know it 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 definitely is something where I, again maybe that is a, a an appeal of it right it's like you know like like art is it, art can't be separated from the artist to some degree you have to take the artist uh experience into the into the appreciation of the work to some degree so you know Spielberg's body of work itself maybe becomes part of the part of the, the subtext for this film which is text which like you said previously was subject so they kind of have, have reverse reverse spots i guess um which i guess is an interesting way to think about this film but I, I think on its own i think my favorite parts of the film were really the parts where it's so the joy of filmmaking like him with his boy scout troop and like you know the ingenuity to like you know poke holes in the film to like recreate like the the gun the gun shots or whatever or like the, the tricks to like hit a board to like make the the, the dirt jump up to like uh, to simulate a gunshot right like those those parts i think were like the part that i love the most about the film where like give me a film about young spielberg making films with his friends for two hours i would love that um the family drama i felt 
you know, again, if you're really into like the history of of, of Spielberg and so on, I can see how it's interesting. Uh, first first hand account of that um, as a film in and of itself, I it felt it felt like a, another family drama film for me, which I don't know if it was any significantly better or worse than any others in that regard. Yeah, I think those parts of the film did end up feeling a little generic, like you mentioned. Um, but to comment on what you mentioned earlier about how you can see how his background informed his film subsequent filmmaking, I think now that he's choosing to tackle something that is more explicitly autobiographical, I think there's a risk that comes with that. And I think the risk is that filmmaker there's a risk of filmmakers being too close to the material to realize what actually makes it interesting and i think Sa the character of sammy fableman's a bit of a case in point i think in the fableman's he more or less exists mainly as a passive observer of the events in his household and it's a bit hard to feel like he's a member of family and that's what caused the family drama elements to suffer like you mentioned right which you know there, there is a there is a take there that like you know like him disassociating from his family, right? And seeing it as a filmmaker is like kind of what led to his career, right? And film was how he went about escaping or dealing and processing all that 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 those experiences, which, you know, kind of goes hand in hand with what you just said. Like he doesn't feel like he's part of the family, that he's like separate, but like a director or or a DP watching the film. It's interesting you mentioned that because I think I read that kind of forbearing quality as Spielberg kind of tiptoeing around the real consequences of his parents' actions. Uh, it, the film seems to always retreat before the, a real confrontation can transpire. Um, and it strikes me a bit as a film by an artist who hasn't quite made up his mind about what sort of characters his parents are. And I think the result isn't so much a kind of complexity as it is a certain vagueness for better or worse but perhaps this, this is by design right you know this is not reality is not as tidy as a hollywood movie so there's no going to be so there's going to be no natural climax to growing up you know what is the climax of the fablemans is it when the parents announce the divorce is it when he screens his film for his classmates at the prom um perhaps but then it continues for another 20 minutes right and then you see Things that happen after and i think i that worked in its i'm not sure i'm still not sure what to make of that i think I, i'm i'm on the, i'm on the fence so to speak of, as yeah. to whether that's successful or i not. mean i will say and I, i've heard this the sentiment echoed before but like that closing shot after he meets with with john ford like or the john ford analog right um and then you know he gives him the advice you know make it interesting right the horizon not in the center put it at the top or the bottom and then the final shot is like literally the camera adjusting for him. Like one, I don't know why that. I, I get why it was. It was. It was a cool thing. I don't know. That might be an apocryphal story that actually happened, or might just be a cool thing, like fanfiction that he wrote about himself or whatever. That said, like if this is if this is Spielberg's last film, which I don't think it is, because we still have Indiana Jones coming out next year. Um, but it, you know, I see directed. I forget. But anyway, if if this is Spielberg's last film, that would be one hell of a shot to end his career on. Um, that that final shot, in a good way or a bad way. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I I find it's a little cheesy, but I think it's like it's like that idea of make it interesting and then like kind of like that meta move. I find it again. It's interesting. It's an interesting shot to end his career on more than anything else. Another interesting choice, I think, is when you have the music playing in the background as he's sitting in the office of John Ford and he's looking at all the posters. 
and then there's like a record scratch that cuts off the music just as he enters and it, it's like it's it's you know it's a little uh like you said it's a bit uh self-referential in a cheesy way and i, I don't know to whether i like it or not yet i think it's i think it's just like Again, I think it goes back to the parts of the film I liked. It's like the joy of filmmaking, right? Like the joy of being able to do these like little nods, these little like winks or whatever. Like, sure, it's a little cheesy, but you have fun doing it. And I think that's at the end of the day, the part of Fableman I like the most. Um, and so if he's having fun with that, you know, the little cheeky record scratch or the little camera adjustment, um, I think that makes the film interesting and fun more than anything else. Um, was there anything else about the Fableman before we move on to the next film? I think what I would say in general is that I think I might have came into the film with high expectations. You, you know, Spielberg directed, you know, three or four of my favorite movies. Um, but this, despite this one being his most personal film, the execution strangely feels like it's its most tepid. Uh, I felt more emotion in the last five minutes of War of the Worlds than I did in parts of the Fablemans. And it, as dismaying as it is to say, um, you know, he still is working with all the same collaborators. He got editor... Michael Kahn, DP, Janusz Kaminski, composer, obviously John Williams. Something is missing, uh, and I don't know what it is. And I think the shortcomings being, are especially salient when you compare it to a sim very similar film like uh, Armageddon Time, directed by James Gray, starring Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong as the parents. Yeah. And Honestly, I thought, I thought this was very similar to um, Licorice Pizza from last year to some degree, right? Okay. Like, you know, Licorice Pizza wasn't, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson's childhood directly. It was his friend's stories, but still has that kind of like, oh, here's just what growing up is like, basically, right? And especially adjacent to the movie industry, right? So like, it mm -hmm. has a similar vibe to it, though. Again, like, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. But anyway, carry on with your, your final thoughts. Sorry for interrupting. Sure. And I, I do think part of it of the film's uh, drawbacks for me is owed to Kushner's script. Um, having seen some of the, his other collaborations with Spielberg, I always felt like his style of dialogue doesn't really uh, do favors for Spielberg's strengths. Uh, the, to just comment briefly on the casting decisions, I think you know Michelle Williams and Paul Dano in their other films are both consistently excellent. Uh, Williams was uh, nominated for an Oscar four times, I think broke back Mountain, uh, Blue Valentine, My Week in Maryland, and Manchester by the Sea, if I'm not mistaken. Dano, I think he has like a BAFTA nomination. But in the Fablemans, they seem to be operating on different levels of energy. Um, like they're almost like they're occupying different films. And Which I mean, like, is, is to be fair, like, it's kind of like part of the point, right? Like, they're very different people who somehow ended up married together, but, you know, they're, 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 they have these irreconcilable differences that lead them to, to drifting apart. Yeah, no, I, I think I was just about to get to that. I think I agree. Perhaps, like I said, this is by des design. Um, you have this you know, emotional, high-strung musician, and you have this very logical and indifferent engineer. Uh, but I think the trouble arises, which is, I think the trouble arises when their union seems impossible to begin with, since then it becomes hard to invest in their marriage succeeding. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think Dano is doing his best to interpret the character generously, but when the portrayal is, I guess, unilaterally unflattering, then it's becomes a little harder to engage with their uh, characters. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a film. You know, to wrap it up, I think this is a film that will get a lot of nominations, right? Like, I have it for at least like six or seven nominations by the end, of, by, by come nomination day. I don't know if it's going to win one. It might win one, maybe, right? Like, maybe you'll get John Williams to score. Maybe they give, you know, 
Spielberg a director not a direct director award kind of like partly like a career award as well right um i don't know if it wins anything beyond that honestly yeah i mean i feel like there we have such a strong uh field of contenders this year that i think that it faces a lot of good competition and with a film this modest it's going to be hard for it to stand out. Yeah, it's interesting seeing, I guess, Spielberg do no one for his big blockbusters, right? Or this these epic historical films doing something like very small and intimate, like a family drama, which like it, it, it at the end of the day, it feels like he wants to do more with it and make a big deal out of this small family drama when at the end of the day, it's just a small family drama and there's only so much you can blow that up, right? Right. Well, I, I think uh, of all of Spielberg's films, the most comparable one is Catch Me If You Can. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. And I think you'll find specific scenes in the film that are direct corollaries to some of the ones that you see in the Fablemans. And I think uh, that ultimately is a film that showcases his um, strengths at tackling autobiographical subjects a little better. Okay, okay. Um, all right, moving on then to the next film. Uh, you, this is one you were particularly excited about. I think you said this was one of your top two, two most anticipated films of the year. Um, this is Tar. Um, after a 16-year hiatus, Todd Field is back, writer and director of the Oscar-nominated films In the Bedroom and Little Children. He has back with a story about fictional German composer and conductor Lydia Tar, played by Kate Blanchett, as she approaches the zenith of her career before old skeletons from her past resurface. In addition to Blanchett, the, the cast features uh, Noemi Merlant from Portrait of Lady of Fire and Nina Haas as Lydia's wife and concertmaster. Um, according to Gold Derby, it is currently ranked fifth for Best Picture, third for Director, first for Actress for Kate Blanchett, and fourth for Original Screenplay. Uh, Tar debuted at the Venice International Film Festival where Blanchett won Best Actress. It had a limited release on October 7th before Focus Features pushed it wide on, on the 28th. It became available for PVOD purchase on November 15th. Currently has a 91 on, critic, on Metacritic currently the third highest of the year, 90% critics and 72 audience on Rotten Tomatoes, and 4.1 stars on Letterboxd out of 63,000 reviews. So, Alex, you said this is one of your most anticipated of the year. Why were you so excited for this film before you even before you even talk about like what the film itself? Right, so I saw my first Todd Field movie, Little Children, a few years ago, probably about 2018 or 2017. And when I did see it, my immediate question was, why haven't more people been talking about this movie? I was just, you know, really struck by the performances that were elicited from all, all the cast members, especially Kate Winslet in the lead role. Um, and this really stunning and disquieting combination of music and image and editing. Um, and that really made me eager to see what else he had. And then I watched In the Bedroom and was equally really taken in by its understated uh approach to conflict. Um, as a side note, both In the Bedroom and The Little Children are both literary adaptations, whereas Tar is a virtual screenplay. So I think that made me even more curious about it. Um, and also the fact that it's just taken so long, like where on earth has Todd Field been all these years? Uh, both you know, his first two films have been nominated for several Oscars. So it's hard to believe that Field is some sort of industry pariah. Um, so you just have to wonder, you know, what was the holdup? Uh, and I did a little research about it, and I do believe that he's had a couple projects try that he tried to get made between them. And one of them was an adaptation of the Jonathan Franzen novel Purity, which would have starred Daniel Craig. Uh, and unfortunately, that one fell through. Interestingly, as a side note, this is actually 
the first of two Franzen adaptations that failed to materialize. The other one is an HBO adaptation of The Corrections, which was set to be directed by Noah Baumbach. A pilot was shot for it with my holy grail media. Um, it had a perfect cast. It had Ewan McGregor and it had Greta Gerwig as the romantic leads. And then you got you know, Diane Weiss and Chris Cooper as the parents. But the problem is that if you, each episode would have cost the same amount as it would have cost to shoot Game of Thrones. So I think they decided that you know it's probably you know with this very literary novel, it's going to be very hard to adapt. So I can understand why it might have been difficult to get produced. Uh, so that note aside, uh, Field also had a supporting role in Eyes Wide Shut, which is the last film directed by Stanley Kubrick. And Kubrick himself also took similarly long breaks between his films. So I think this is association that really made me curious because it conjures this air of mystery to Field's persona. Um, so that's a bit of a summary as to why I was really interested in this. Yeah. And then how, how did it turn out for you when you ended up seeing it? Like, did it live up to the expectations? Yeah. So you mean to state up front, I did really enjoy it a lot. However, I would say that comparing it to Kubrick may not be my first impulse. I think there are a few similarities, right? The, the psychological intensity, the measured pacing, and the esoteric topics. But I think a more apt comparison is to be made to the films of Mikkel Haneke. Uh, so for the listeners who don't know, Mikkel Haneke is an Austrian director who made, whose film Amour won Best Foreign Film in 2014. And he is also one of the few filmmakers to win a Golden Palm twice at Cannes. And I don't think the resemblance is coincidental. Uh, TAR's editor, Monica Willey, also edited Haneke's 2001 feature, The Piano Teacher, which is a drama also about a demanding music instructor who, spoiler alert, has an affair with her students. And I also think, but I do think that like both Haneke and like Kubrick, Tar is a very challenging film to watch, right? Like I mentioned, the pacing is a bit glacial, the humor is very dry, and the script occasionally delves into esoteric topics. And that it also seems to me to be pulling from all different kinds of sources. For instance, there's this dream sequence where Lydia is sleeping on a bed on fire in the forest. And based on my research, that's a visual quotation of the short film Blue by the Thai filmmaker at Pichapong Weir's Ethical, who is also a Cannes Palm, uh, Golden Palm winner. So, uh, and also I love classical music. I, paid, I played piano and clarinet for most of high school and consider myself somewhat of a music enthusiast. And I enjoyed a lot of the references uh, I will say, though, I don't think having a background in music or foreign movies is necessary to appreciate Tar. I do, I would, I do think that it is a film that rewards repeat viewings. So, yeah, to get into a bit more detail about some of the things that I really appreciate about it, I think it's a sort of film that I love the sorts of films that upend viewers' viewing habits, right? You have these disorienting changes in pacing and setting and these intrusions of surrealism. And I think that it manages to successfully cultivate this atmosphere of paranoia and place us in Lydia's perspective, while still remaining subtle and allowing viewers to rely on their own judgment. I think the film's biggest asset, however, is that I think it does fairly engage with both sides of debate as to whether to separate the art from the artists. And would also the it also, I think, engages earnestly with a larger discussion around the merits of cancel culture. I have heard that the film has went through somewhat of a backlash because there, 
you know, in many sectors in recent years going through this reckoning with the various abuses of power that have been happening in their ranks. Um, however, at the same time, I do feel like many of us are also familiar with cases where, you know, mob justice is taken too far, or we've encountered situations where such indignation might be misdirected. And I think the film tries to portray both sides of that debate. I think it's a very thoughtful film, and I felt really immersed in the world that it tries to portray in the internal politics of it, and the different kind of social codes that are all interacting with one another. And I found it really absolutely hypnotic. Yeah, I I think hypnotic's a good word for it, right? It's definitely a film that, you know, you can get very lost in. Um, I can definitely see how it would benefit from repeat viewing. I think, like, again, I think this is a very well-made film. I think the editing, like you pointed out, and also the cinematography and just, like, the directing in general was top-notch, right? I definitely see why, you know, Field is probably going to get nominated for, for, for director. Honestly, I think cinematography, if cinematography and editing weren't so crowded this year, um, I could definitely see this being, being in any other year up there. Um, I think the screenplay-wise, you know, I think it's interesting because I think there's, there's, for me, there's, like, two sides of this, right? So, when I was like looking up, you know, after watching the film, there's a lot I didn't get about the film, right? Like, you know, I know I'm I I've, I'm tangential to the classical wor- musical world. Like, I have a lot of friends who are into classical music, so I've picked up a lot of things through osmosis, right? But for example, right, like you know, there was this one specific thing that I found in in the Reddit comment online that like you know this nice touch that you know at the beginning in the New Yorker interviews he's like you know I am the controller of time in my right in my hand I can make time stop. And then at the very end of the film, which, by the way, one of the funniest endings, I think, for a film, in a freaking Monster Hunter concert, a cosplay con- concert, a soundtrack concert, see, then puts on headphones at the end that, you know, you know, if you don't, if you didn't know, has a click track basically that that's a metronome to keep her on pace with the visuals on the screen, right? So she no longer has control as director, like she claimed to, you know, actually control time. Like she's she's now beholden to time, kind of symbolizing her fall from grace and so on, right? So like that's interesting, right? I think one thing about screenplays, which I really like about well-done screenplays, in my opinion, are those where you can come in knowing nothing about the context and then still come away with it, understanding it fully, right? I think there's a lot in Tar that you won't really get the film truly until you do some outside research, some homework, if you will, on the film. Like, like apparently in director's interviews, like, Todd Field says that, oh, Lydia Tarr suffers from, from misphonia, which is like a phobia of specific sounds or whatever, right? Or like, apparently her mother was deaf, right? Or like, you know, there's this sequence when like, see, you know, there, there are hints to like over the opening credits, there's like this, this chanting song going on that apparently is Peruvian music, which ties into her PhD in musicology of Peru, which later on in the film is hinted at based on the comments I saw online that, oh, her and her assistant and then the person who was, you know, uh, accusing her also had gone on a Peru trip. So they were all kind of in the know of this language and that's how they all communicate. And that's why she was freaking out about certain like maze-like things or whatever. Like there's all this stuff in here that is like, it's such a well conceived world. I don't know if they did a good job of conveying that entire world to us, right? Um, which again, there's a benefit to that, which is like, oh, it's a true world. Like this is definitely again, we'll get get to Kate Blanchett in a second, which is her own point of discussion. But just like the world and the character and everything is so well realized, it almost as if they just didn't do a good. They did too much almost to be able to like 
they weren't able to convey it fully to us as an audience, which I think is just like it just lacks just that much, I guess, like like um, brevity, I guess, or 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 ability to convey what they need to get across if you didn't do your homework. Which like I don't know if I want my films to have homework if I want to appreciate them, right? Yeah, I, I think you know I would agree. It is like a bit of a daunting film to go in like not knowing about the Peruvian music or or whatever, right? But I think what I appreciate is that I, I like films that have this mystery to it, and that sort of pushes me to try to investigate it a bit further. I think that's ultimately what appealed uh, to me about it. Um, this the kind of um, haziness that I'm just uh, surrounded with. Yeah, I think there there is something about films like that where there is there I think there's there's a fine line to be drawn, right? Like a film, I think, and this is my personal opinion, right? A film should be able to be self-contained. Where you watch it, you get everything you need from it to understand it, at least to a certain level, right? If you want, there's the ability to go further and research more and understand the influences and the context and all of these other things about the specific world that they're investigating, if you so choose, right? Um, which I think is, is great that there is stuff out there. It's just that at what point does that line balance shift where it's like you need to do homework in order to have the bare minimum appreciation for the film, I think is is I think it's just barely on the wrong side of that. Again, I still think it's a one of the best well-done films out there. I had to say it's the most enjoyable film I watched this year, but it's definitely like one of the well-executed films. Speaking of execution, let's talk about Kate Blanchett, right? So many people say she's probably head and head maybe slightly ahead, depending on your perspective, with Michelle Yeoh for Best Actress this year, right? Um, which, you know, I have my own biases. I definitely am a bit of a, Miss, a Michelle Yeoh stan. Um, but, you know, I mean, Kate, I, I can definitely recognize that Kate threw herself into this role, right? And see this portrays all of, like, the range of emotions you'd want from, like, you know, at the end of the day, I think Tar, Tar is, at the end of its day, a character study, right? It's this one specific character who Todd Field and Kate Benton in in Union have conceived and realized into existence through her acting and through his writing right and i and and there's very few characters that come to mind that have that level of just character acting that that Blanche had brought to this so i i i again i would want Yeoh to win for for best actress i completely and, un, and understand and am okay with kate Blanchett taking best actress here right and i think that they're both head to head in the current critics awards race right i think they almost have like an equal Yo, neck number and neck. Of... it's it's so close right and I, but i think something that might be the deciding factor uh, beyond matters of quality is the sort of internal politics to the oscars regarding genre and i think there is a, a slight genre bias uh you know it towards dramas in the oscars for performances as opposed to uh, you know that I think is a disservice to films like Everything Everywhere All At Once, which is trying to draw on the same aesthetics as kung fu movies. So, well, I'm a big fan of both of them, but unfortunately, I feel like that's going to be one of the fa- things that factor into who ultimately wins. I was going to say, what, what, what did you think of Tar's performance just overall then? Separate from the Michelle versus, versus Kate debate, what, what did you think of her performance in, in Tar? I was just drawn in. I was scared of Kate Blanchett. Like, <laughs> I think it was one of definitely one of those performances that I think make the underlying psychology of the character very uh, clear and very credible. Uh, something, uh, one performance that I always thought about throughout watching Tar was uh, Daniel Day Lewis and Daryl Blood playing Daniel Plainview. The, the, the actors are so immersed in the roles that I, I stop seeing uh, the people performing on screen as 
Kate Blanchett. No, no, I was saying, they, they, like you're saying, they basically fully embodied the character that Kate Blanchett just faded away, and it was only Lydia Tarr you know, on stage. No, exactly, and I think I think she was definitely also helped by having a really strong supporting cast as well, and such that every scene that I felt that I see Kate Blanchett in and interacting with our characters felt like a very credible part of that universe. Also, her handling of the jargon and of um, when you see her conducting in front of the orchestra it's easy to believe that she could actually be a musician. And I think I came away from the film thinking more about the subject of the film rather than the craft of the film, which I think is ultimately what you want. Because in the best made films, I think the craft fades away a little. And I think that was the way it was for me watching the performances in Tar and Kate Blanchett specifically in particular, who I think really embodied the role. Yeah. I do want to shout out uh, Nina Haas, uh, her you know who plays her partner, uh, who she did so much with so little, right? Like see, most of her acting was just like little faces, facial expressions, right? Um, and she just did so much with so little. Um, also, want to shout out you know Hilda Gordon here, um, who unfortunately did not get shortlisted for score this year. Um, she has though she has she did get shortlisted for Woman Talking, um, but you know it's kind of also funny she got shouted out uh, in that in that in this whole scene with the New Yorker. Um, kind of funny getting the how how rare is it to have like the composer of the score actually mentioned in the film itself, right? That was that was pretty fun to see. One of my favorite scenes with um, Nina Haas is when uh, Lydia is openly flirting with the cellist in the orchestra, and you see uh, Nina just like glance back and forth very quickly. And that sort of uh, reaction, I think, says all you need to say about her understanding of what's going on in that very moment. Like I said, does a lot with very little. I was almost hoping that she would get a supporting actress nomination. Yeah, I mean, that that race is a mess right now. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, again, to wrap to wrap it up before we move to our, our, our second to last film, uh, also just got to shout out again, that, that whole Monster Hunter scene at the end. I just found yeah. it, I was just suddenly so, so, I, you know, we're both Filipinos, just really, wait, are they speaking Tagalog on the screen right now? Yeah. Like, is he writing it deeply right now? Like, okay, cool, I'm, I'm all about that. Right. I Yeah, I have so many thoughts in it. And as you mentioned that earlier, and I definitely want to touch on this a tiny bit at least, uh, I love the ending because it can also be interpreted in so many different ways, right? You know, after she loses her post in Berlin, we see her like conducting this youth ensemble somewhere vaguely in Southeast Asia. And then you I hear Tagalog on screen. It's like, oh, it must be somewhere in the Philippines. Um, but it's Interestingly, I think some people perceive that those scenes uh, of Lydia's banishment as a slight uh, to the cultural institutions of these other countries. And I can understand a little bit of why, right? You got this dramatic shift in the setting and that implies a bit of this contrast. Like, what is the contrast? Well, they accept Lydia while the Berlin Philharmonic doesn't. And the fact they're willing to accept a disgraced composer portrays such institutions as desperate. However, I am not sure that this reading gets at the main point of the scene, which is that, uh, you know, much of the film is spent detailing how Lydia uses her power to control other people. By conducting music for a video game concert, she must confront a situation where she doesn't have any power. Uh, you know, the music exists at the service of something else. The people who have in attend a video game concert don't really care about who she is, so she's going through this very humbling experience. On top of that, I'm also a bit of an optimist, so I don't really see this scene as implying that Lydia is being punished, right? I see it as her getting a second chance. So towards the end, Lydia watches uh, in her childhood home a taped lecture by Leonard Bernstein, right? And she is very moved by it. And Bernstein was known for championing, uh, championing the importance of educating young people about music. 
So I think we can interpret Lydia's fate at the end of Tar as her taking to heart Bernstein's mission and applying his advice in earnest. And what better place to do it in, as than somewhere that isn't exposed to orchestral music as often. And I think there's a third possibility, actually, which is that you also see in the third act of the film, Lydia meets with a PR team who advises her to have a fresh image. So it's very likely that her new position is an attempt to rehabilitate her image as she's preparing for a comeback. So I love uh, I love that it can be seen in so many different ways. Also, also don't please don't hate on like the the soundtrack concerts. I mean, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings concert live or like a, the the music of Studio Ghibli live, I mean, like you know, you know that those are true artists, even if they're not you know doing classical music. Of course. Actually, uh, it's, it's so funny because I did not know what Monster Hunter was until I saw this movie, and I thought I have to go look what look up what it is, and I learned something. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, all right. Finally, our last best picture film we'll talk about, you know, about an hour in, but we still have more to go, um, is the other film you are most looking forward to this year, um, which I wasn't expecting from you, to, to, to be honest, Alex, uh, but Top Gun Maverick. Um, so not sorry at the beginning of the year, I would have called this an Oscar favorite, but here we are. Tom Cruise returns to the sky as Maverick in the sequel to the 1986 military action drama named Top Gun. Uh, the sequel is directed by Joseph Kosinski, a director of Tron Legacy, uh, and on Maverick training a number of young Top Gun graduates to undertake a dangerous mission. Along the, among the trainees is Rooster, son of his deceased wingman Goose, played by Mouse Teller. Also featured in the film are Van Kilmer, Jennifer Connelly, John Hamm, Glenn Powell, Lewis Pullman, and Ed Harris. Uh, according to the Gold Derby, it is currently ranked fourth for Best Picture, fifth somehow for Best Actor for Tom Cruise, sixth for Adapted Screenplay, second for Cinematography, first for Editing, first for Best Sound, third for Original Song, which is Hold My Hand by Lady Gaga, and second for Visual Effects. Um, obviously, one of the big stories about this is, of course, its box office success. Um, you know, After debuting at CinemaCon in April, it had its appearance at the Cannes Film Festival before its domestic release by Paramount May 27th uh, in the most theaters of any film for the opening weekend 4735 at which point it shot straight up into the stratosphere hitting Mach 10 becoming the highest grossing Memorial Day film of all time it has grossed 717 million dollars domestically and 770 million overseas for 1.48 billion US to be the highest grossing film of this year um, Avatar just released this past weekend it may surpass that but as of right now Top Gun is still the highest grossing film of the year um, and it's currently the fifth highest goes in domestic film of all time, behind only The Force Awakens, Endgame, No Way Home, and the first Avatar film. It's also the 11th highest grossing film of all time worldwide. Uh, due to an assistance from Tom Cruise, as well as having an amazing week-over-week -week performance, I mean, it was the highest-selling film in the last week of summer, you know, several months later. Um, it finally came to digital August 23rd and physical media on November 1st, and is on Paramount Plus uh, as of December 22nd. Currently has a 78 on Metacritic, 96 percent critics and 99 percent audience on Rotten Tomatoes and 4.1 stars on Letterboxd with a 493,000 reviews. Um, this is, you know, again, if not, you know, not, not aside from the surprise of it, for me at least from the beginning of the year, getting nominated for Oscars, it is by far the box office story of the year. So Alex, tell me about your love for Top Gun. Yes, so I think there are a couple other records that the film set that hasn't been mentioned yet. I If I'm not mistaken, and listeners can fact check this if they want i believe it's the highest grossing tom cruise film since war of the worlds and it's also yes it is. it is it is his highest grossing film of all time of course but yeah yes yeah, so, and um the last one but the, you know it's surprising how much time has elapsed between his previous one and now i mean war of the worlds is like what 2005 it's been 
quite a while. And also, I just want to do a quick shout out to some Tar slash Top Gun connections. Both feature actors from Eyes Wide Shut. Cruz obviously plays the lead role in Eyes Wide Shut, but also uh, Kate Blanchett uh, plays the voice of the woman who saves Cruz's character during the masked ball scene. And the second connection is that both Tar and Top Gun have audio samples from pre-existing films uh, as Easter eggs. So in, in Top Gun Maverick, you have the volleyball scene. The cheers are actually sampled from the first Top Gun film. And in Tar, the screams that Lydia hears in the forest are sampled from the ending of the Blair Witch Project. So just a, little, a couple of uh, interesting details I just wanted to throw out there. Um, so to give a back some context into my viewing circumstances for Top Gun, I saw it actually twice this year. The first time was at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, and uh, the second time was when I saw it with my parents at the Airbus Theater in the National Airspace Museum in DC, which is the largest IMAX screen in the DC area. First off, you have to go to Cannes, so super jealous, but carry on. Sure. I, I'll, I'll just offer a brief context about that. This was my third year at Cannes, and the first time was right when I graduated from Penn since they had the summer abroad program there. Second time, 2021, right at when the pandemic started dying down. I had originally only planned to visit Germany, and I realized that uh, Top Gun would be premiering at Cannes, and I thought, oh, I have to go see this, because I saw Top Gun at Cannes. It's such an insane combination of words, given the festival is known for less commercial fare, right? And I was very curious to hear what my peers might think. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't go to the red carpet premiere because the tickets sold out immediately, but I was able to snag a ticket for the rerun the immediate day following, and also for a moderated Q&A with Tom Cruise. Uh, I was able to get into the, uh, the screening by waiting in the last minute ticket line, and I was really glad that I had the patience to wait for a couple of hours to get inside. Uh, something I always remember from the Q&A is when Cruz says, nobody asks why Gene Kelly does his own dancing. And I think that reveals a lot about how, his, how he perceives himself within the film industry and how he relates to the sorts of films he wants to get made. I think based on a lot of the films I've seen, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan, seen uh, many of his films in theaters, Night, of, uh, Night and Day, Edge of Tomorrow, all of the Mission Impossible films since Girls Protocol. And I feel like he sees himself as the inheritor of the tradition that includes people like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, and probably even Jackie Chan, right? The question each time is, how will he top his previous stunt, right? News had been circulating since before the pandemic about what his follow-up project would be to uh, Shin Impossible Fallout, uh, which I had seen right around the time I started doing film school. I went to LA and I saw it at the Chinese theater there. And I was always wondering what he would do next. And when we started getting news that he would be inside an actual uh, fighter jet, I got really excited. Uh, then COVID hit, then they kept pushing it back, the release date. And its reputation, I think, grew into something of a bit of a mythical proportions. So, uh, and I think that when I finally saw the film, it managed to really fulfill the narrative trajectory of his career. You look back at the films that he made from the 80, 80s through the 90s through the 2000s, you can see that um, his career could have turned out in many different ways. The consensus, I think, is that he would have had a very different path had he won the Oscar for Born in the Fourth of July. Instead, he lost to Daniel Day-Lewis for My Left Foot. But after that, what's interesting is that he's been popular for so long 
that his filmography seems to be a thermostat for what uh, trends are occurring in the wider popular cinematic culture. Like in the 90s to mid 2000s, he started a bunch of dramas, uh, prestige pictures, esoteric films like Eyes Wide Shut. From the mid 2000s onward, after Mission Possible 3 specifically, he, he devoted himself almost exclusively to you know, a very steady diet of well-received, relatively popular action movies. Um, but there were some trends that I think he was resistant to adopting and that are antithetical to the Tom Cruise brand, which is superhero franchises and streaming services. Uh, and as the franchise method of content production gradually took over, movies that relied on star power became seen as increasingly anachronistic, and obsolete. So I think one of the reasons that Maverick is really interesting and really remarkable is that uh, it's almost a rebuke to the landscape that's dominated by the green screen and the small screen, right? It's a recapitulation of the pleasures that can only be got from the theatrical experience. And that's a has a defiant quality that I very much admire. I mean, I mean, that's in the screenplay, right? Like he's he's basically in the screenplay. The the metaphor is that you know he's the pilot who goes and flies his own planes and does these crazy stunts that no one should be able to do, but he still does them. And then he says, "The and he your kind's a dying breed, but we're not extinct yet, right?" Uh, he says exactly. like that more early on in the film, right? And you know, yeah, I mean, some would say he's the last true film star, right? No, precisely, precisely. I think that you know, I feel like you know, reading reviews of it. Uh, online and elsewhere, uh, the film has turned into somewhat of a political war scotch test, right? There are many analysis of the supposed ideological underpinnings. Uh, you know, the first film was basically an advertisement for the Air Force. Uh, and I think these political interpretations missed the point. Military-themed content is so heavy-handed that it hardly counts as subtext. I would argue that it actually functions as a pretext for the real content, which is to serve as a star vehicle for crews, right? I mean, you could even say like the the MCU is is you know quasi military advertisement, right? Yes, yes, and but you know for Top Gun Maverick, on the contrary, it's a film so obsessed with its own iconography and so insistent on persuading the audience of the protagonist's competence, and that it wouldn't really make any sense under any other possible casting. Um, like you mentioned, you know, there's this metaphor of drones versus pilots, right? The Air Force wants to retire a specific training program replace it with unmanned aircraft. And the film firmly establishes this conflict between old and new, between pilots and drones. And looking at Cruz's career specifically, the metaphor becomes very clear, right? He's, he's championed theatrical experience, benefits of in-camera stunt work. Um, given that the film does little to distinguish between Maverick and Cruz himself, we can deduce that analogy. Uh, Maverick is the star system. And drones are Cruz's competitors, VFX heavy superheroes, and streaming series. It's uh, it's so- interesting, right? Because like so earlier we were talking about failments, right? And how it kind of fell flat for us because you know it's a film that you know in and of itself wasn't that interesting, and it's made interesting by the subtext of the director or the star behind it, right? Spielberg, right? And kind of his whole body of work going into that. In some senses, you would say. Top Gun Maverick is a lot of the same way, but you know I enjoyed Top Gun way more than I enjoyed The Fablements, and it sounds like you have a lot more passion for, I think, Top Gun itself than you did for The Fablements. Correct me if I'm wrong. What do you think was the difference between those two films, even though they have, like, you know, part of the appeal of Top Gun being it is so rooted in Tom Cruise's brand and identity versus, you know, Fablements being rooted in Spielberg's? 
Right. I I feel guilty because I, the moment I say said both of those things, I, I realized that it might appear like there's somewhat of a double standard, right? You, both you know of these films are appreciated very much in the context of their uh, filmmakers' uh, filmographies, and that forms the subjects of the film. So why would I, you know, why did that not work for me in Fablemans? Why did it work for Top Gun? And I think because Top Gun is seen as a uh, I guess extension of things that had not been fully realized previously whereas in F- Spielberg's films I do feel like it has been fully realized previously yeah, and we've seen, we've seen the fable ones before you've never seen you know se- separating the whole Tom Cruise element of it aside just like you know I mean my favorite scene in the film is when he runs the two minute test basically right and like will he complete this test that no, everyone says can't be done right and he he does it right I was literally I felt myself I, I seen it like I want to say two, maybe three times myself as well in theaters. And it's like, I was on the edge of my seat and I felt my heart pumping in my chest every time that scene comes up, right? Even though I know what's going to happen, right? It just still captures me in that moment where it's like, you know, something about like, maybe it's the fact that it's the genre of the film, right? Like a, a relatively, you know, small family drama versus a big, you know, heart pumping action, you know, plain film. Maybe that's part of the difference of it, right? Maybe it's a better match. You know, I think of Spielberg as more like a blockbuster person than like a drama person per se. Um, whereas, you know, here it's like, you know, very much like in line with, with what Tom Cruise has done up to this point. So maybe that's why. Yeah, no, I think I would agree with that assessment. I think that, but it, it's funny saying that because I'm normally the type of person who likes these more smaller, understated movies, and it still didn't quite work for some reason. But I do think part of it is the match, right? This kind of fit between the the filmmaker and the and the film. Uh, and I do think that it just in terms of the formal aspects and qualities of the movie itself, I think in Top Gun's case, it's just really beautifully shot. I would I would hope that the cinematographer Claudio Miranda gets more recognition for his work. He shot, you know, one of my favorite uh, cinematographic movies, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And was, I thought it was one of the best movies shot I've seen. And I really hope that, and I thought that his work on Top Gun Maverick was just so... And I mean, um, they developed like a whole new way to suit film, right? Like, again, it's been said dozens of places, hundreds of places online about how they like literally put the pilots in these jets and flew them. And then they basically would just like press, like start the camera recording, do like a half hour flying and bring it back down. So, you know, it's up for editing. You're a professional editor. So what are your, to see your thoughts on like the editing and also because editing and sound go very much hand in hand at the Oscars, the editing and sound design of these of, of Top Gun Maverick from, from a professional perspective. I think it stands a really good chance because what was really impressive to me is how during the climactic uh, scene where you have, you know, bombs blowing up everywhere and the planes flying everywhere, I never felt once disoriented. And I, that's a really, that is a sign of really good and smart editing. Uh, it, it's managed to feel dynamic and engrossing, but at the same time, it managed to have a coherent sense of space and time, and still and still convey what is happening within the story. Yeah, didn't feel I mean, there's a, a lot. There was a rhythm to it, right? Like, there's a mm-hmm. rhythm to like, like the 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 shot, the counter shot, you know, the the you know how long you hold on to a particular shot and and cut over to to another view. Just it just makes sense that it, it just flows together. Right, and I, I think really for me it was establishing the geography of the scene, right? So throughout the, a lot of the film, various parts of the plot are devoted to explaining 
what mission needs to be accomplished. You see diagrams of what the area is going to be like. You see uh, test runs of what the airplanes, how the airplanes are going to be navigating around it. I think it was very helpful during the climactic scene where they're accomplishing the mission that the geography was very well established and advanced. And I think that editing was very successful at conveying that such that viewers don't really lose interest or disengage from the film. And I think that's ultimately what stood out to me the most because it's so hard. And it ties into the screenplay, right? Like earlier on, they very much set up like these were the stakes. This is what this is what needs to be done so that when the actual mission happens, right, after all the practice runs and whatnot, you know what's going to happen. They don't need to explain it. They don't need to ruin the flow of the of the of that sequence. Well, like you've been through this. You've been like with the pilots training and training, and then you can just edit to the actual sequences, and you know what's happening when they change the language of the editing like match this particular sequence like, oh they're doing this now they're doing this now they're doing this now right i will say uh, in terms of editing there's one scene i want to point out that i find very strange which is where uh maverick goes over to penny's house and he like sleeps over and they have this conversation in bed it's very odd because you don't really ever you have a bunch of close-ups and it kind of does as he enters we dissolve from close-up to close-up and then they're just like lying in bed having a conversation, but you actually don't see the interior of the house. And it's very interesting to me because it, it felt somewhat disorienting and it's not something that I would expect for that sort of scene. Um, and funnily enough, that's like the one editing, that's the, the one scene in the film where the editing really stood out to me because I felt a little, I felt a little off put by it because it felt a bit like uh, it had the flavor of this market-tested compromise, right? You don't want to show too much nudity because you want it to be family-friendly and you want to send it to all these different sorts of markets, but you still have to convey, oh, you know, uh, they slept together. Um, so that's... Yeah, and, they, and they throw, throw back to the old romance of the first topic. Right, <laughs> right yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think the editing was just really, it was a real standout for the film. And I, and I think that really showed in many of the training montages and especially during climax, because I think that it could have been a real mess, you know, with that many moving parts, but it was ultimately successful at conveying what's happening in the scene and the stakes of the story and keeping viewers engaged. For sure, for sure. Any other closing thoughts on Top Gun? Sure. So um, a couple of things. I, you know, we talk so much about Cruz himself that I don't really get to talk that much about the director. And I mentioned how superhero franchises and streaming series are kind of like these competitors uh, for, you know, the cruise uh, dominance, right? And I think another competitor might also be the directors, which is, explains a change in how he approaches his collaborations with the directors between the 2000s and what you see in the 2010s, right? You, at the height of Cruise's career, you really see him working with these very distinctive voices. You've got Kubrick, Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spielberg, and Michael Mann. And those are all just in a couple of years. But in more recent times, uh, you see a very different trajectory. The two Mission Impossible films directed by Christopher McQuarrie, Rogue Nation and Fallout. And then he has two collaborations with Doug Liman, which is Edge of Tomorrow and American Made. And I think all of these films are, I think, are a bit more faceless. They're a bit more journeyman-like in their approach to craft. And uh, the, you know, the fourth Mission Impossible film, uh, Ghost Protocol, which is directed by Brad Bird, is a bit of an exception to that. In Krasinski's case, Cruz has worked with him once before, which is Oblivion. And it's worth noting that uh, Top Gun Maverick is actually only the second sequel that Krasinski has directed to a popular 80s movie. 
the first one that was Con, Con Legacy, Con Legacy right? exactly, which is the follow-up to you know groundbreaking live-action Disney film. So I think we're dealing with a filmmaker here who really knows how to leverage nostalgia, uh, and I think that ultimately worked to Top Gun Maverick's benefit. Um, one um, down, I think one of the cons to the film for me was that when I watched the Tom Cruise action movie, I want to see him running. I want to see him jumping. I want to see him punching bad guys. That's which is what the Mission Impossible films have. But if you want to shoot inside a real life fighter plane, there are only a handful of places you can put the camera. So I, f I do feel like the dynamism and the kinetics of the Mission Impossible movies is a bit visually absent from Top Gun Maverick. And most of the time, it does kind of feel like he he's you know sitting down. Um, it's thrilling to watch nonetheless, but I think that uh, I was expecting more on that front. Yeah. And I mean, I mean that that last part is kind of like partly offset, perhaps, but just by the knowledge that everyone in the plane is literally in a plane filming it as they're doing these G turns or whatever, right? Exactly. Uh, so I mean, you you kind of you you can't fake that facial reaction that they're getting. Yes, yes, that's what I was gonna say. Right. All right. So, you know, those are all the films that are probably going to get into block, into Best Picture plus Pinocchio. Um, we do have one bonus film we'll talk about very, very quickly. Um, we're already like almost an hour and a half now, but um, we, I was able to see this in theaters. Uh, I've been putting off seeing this in theaters for uh, until I could until I could see it on the big screen. And Alex actually linked me to a screening uh, that was coming that was here in New York. Uh, so I was able to finally watch RRR or uh, Rise, Roar, Revolt. Um, so this is the, uh, again, a film not like to get best picture i think but it's been on a lot of critics top 10 lists and i figured it was worth talking about um so like i mentioned rrr is an indian language telugu epic film action film from ss rajamuli telling the, the story of the fictionalized friendship between two real life revolutionaries uh, aluri raju and uh, karim beam uh, who fought against the british rule um, this is the most expensive indian film made to date costing about 72 million us and it's the second highest grossing telugu language film worldwide but Behind Bahubali 2, which is also by directed by Rajamuli. Uh, it's shown up again on a lot of critics' top 10 lists of the year. Um, it unfortunately was not selected by India for their uh, international language film submission that went to the last film show, which is a very, you know, power of cinema, you know, kid watching films in like this this rundown movie theater in the in rural rural India film. Um, apparently very well. It got shortlisted, but it's no no RRR. It's been sewing up. There's been kind of like a push from many in the industry to try to get it to best picture. Um, sewn up on a lot of best uh, best critics top 10 lists. According to Gold Derby, it's currently 13th for best picture. Honestly, the only category it's really competitive at this point. It missed a lot of shortlist nominations, but it is uh, competitive for best song, which is not to not to uh, at number one. So just real quick, since I don't want to make this episode go on too much longer, Alex, but um, when did you see RRR on the big screen? So I saw it uh, in September while I was in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Film Society. I said, I cannot you know, watch it on Netflix. I have to go see it on big screen. So I waited until they did a rerun. I imagine it's going to be one of those films that many independent theaters just put in their repertory slate for years to come because it's such a crowd pleaser, right? And it was really surprising to me when I saw that uh, India did not choose it as a submission for best foreign film category. That's a really surprising omission. Uh, I do feel like, um, from what I've heard, that the decision to submit a, a different movie reflects something of the internal politics of the Indian film industry and their attitudes towards South, uh, South Indian film. Uh, for a long time, uh, Bollywood, which is the Hindi language, 
uh, cinema was the dominant industry in India. And most of the time, those are the ones that would get a lot of acclaim from the Western, critic, uh, Western critics and festivals. And so it's, it's pretty rare for a South Indian film, especially in Telugu, to make it this far. And it's really, and I'm really glad that it did because it's so refreshing uh, in terms of how it you know, treats visual effects and action sequences. It's pretty different from what you might see in an American action movie, for instance of how uh, over the top it might seem. And I think that's what made, and part of the novelty of that is I think what made it really appealing to American critics. Yeah. Have you seen uh, Rajamuli's other works, Bahubali, by any chance or no? I have not. I really need to see it as soon so as So I can. actually, I actually saw both Bahubali and Bahubali 2, which again, both are two separate three hour films. So I had to like watch, I watched six hours of this, like nine hours of this guy at this point in theaters. Um, you know, I mean, he's he definitely knows how to do accent. I think, honestly, like Bahubali is even more over the top in its accent, to be quite honest. Um, you know, I mean, I, there was definitely, I think, something to RRR that, that Bahubali lacked. Like, you know, I mean, the not to not to, I mean, in and of itself is just like a whole whole thing, basically. I think like the bromance friendship between the two main characters is really something to see, I think. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think the best way to describe it is just it's almost like a live action anime film or whatever, right? In, in, in the way that they fight and just like, you know, it's very fictionalized. I mean, the guy is swinging, swinging uh, like a motorcycle around or whatever, right? Or like as a little boy, it's like one shot, one killing, like, like, like you know, uh, 360 no scoping, you know, his the, the, the enemy soldiers or whatever, right? I mean, it's just insane, right? Um, I mean, you know, again, as like a, I can see why, you know, I mean, I, I've seen other Indian films I don't think this is like the best Indian film out there, frankly speaking, or even the best Indian accent film out there. So I can see why, you know, maybe people in India didn't think it was like, you know, the, the best film ever. That would be the most likely to, you know, most artistic quality film. As far as like a, just a pure, enjoyable, you know, accent fest, one of the best accent films I've, I've seen in a long time, frankly, like better than most Marvel films. I mean, it is long, right? It was really hard finding like, time in my schedule to actually see a three-hour film in one chunk right in theaters right like that's definitely something where netflix isn't appealing but if you do have a chance to see it in theaters like alex recommended for me definitely see this on the big screen if at all possible with the best sound system you can right it, it, it's a communal experience right just seeing it with an audience seeing them cheer and that's something that i think people were really eager to get back to doing now that the pandemic seems to be uh, less than a little, and that's yeah. And you know, I'm I'm glad that it's you know it is in contention at, at the very least for best original song, if nothing else. Um, at least we'll we'll get to see the not to not to dance on the Oscar stage uh, come come ceremony night. Definitely, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. All right, so that is all the films uh, we had to talk this episode. Um, so you know, Alex, you know, any closing thoughts on these films overall? You know, any any other thoughts that, that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I think something that a lot of the films that we've discussed so far have in common is that I think they all, a lot of the conversation around them uh, online regarding the rewards race seems to concern the reputations of the people involved in it, right? You know, Todd Field being, you know, gone for 16 years. Uh, Cruz sort of consistently making crazier and crazier action movies over the past 10 years, right? Spielberg dealing with all of his family trauma for throughout his entire career, right? Guillermo del Toro somehow getting in with Nightmare Alley, even if it showed up on nobody's predictions last year. Somehow he got the best picture last year. Exactly. You know, know, let's not forget Pinocchio has been in development for a really long time. 
Yeah. Uh, and Del Toro's had a lot of. Yeah, I mean, I well. guess I guess that's one way to think about this. Like these are all films that are behind, like you know, not a singular mind, but very much influenced by the main director, or you know, also for for Tar, Kate Blanchett, right? It's kind of like a very pivotal name there. Who these are passion projects, right? Passion projects that have been in development for a long time. There we go. We have the theme for our awesome. episode now. <laughs> it, only, it only took us an hour and a half to put this together. Uh, all right. So, all right, Alex. So any other films, you know, that not in this episode from this past year, you know, maybe I, I won't make you give me a full top 10 unless you already have it off the top of your head, but any films from this past year that, that, that you've really enjoyed? Sure. So my top film from this year is actually one of the films that I saw at the Cannes Film Festival earlier in May. It was EO by Jerzy Skolomowski, and it deals with the journey of a donkey after he is separated from his owner at the circus in the various sectors of society that he encounters. It's really moving, but it's also incredibly beautiful and a great score. Um, and I really would hope to see more from the people who worked with it in the future. Yeah. Uh, I think for I think it's Poland's. I think it's Poland's submission for international film, and I think it got shortlisted. So I think it, it has a very good chance at getting nominated. I I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Uh, oh, also another question. Uh, what was the better Kate Blanchett role? Was it Kate Blanchett as Tar or Kate Blanchett as Pazitura the monkey? <laughs> I, I will judge the performances by how much they can do and how little, right? Um, and you know, it's funny how Kate Blanchett mentioned that she wanted to work with Del Toro for you know a long time. That she would, I think, go out of her way to like play a pencil in one of his movies. And I think she put definitely put all of that uh, enthusiasm, I think, into her role in Pinocchio, and I'm glad that she did. So Spazitura for Best Actress. Let's go. Yes. Um, all right. And then and finally, any other films in 2023 you're looking forward to? I know we have the new Mission Impossible movie, of course, coming up. Um, but is there anything else coming out uh, in 2023 you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the new Indiana Jones. So I think... Unfortunately, it's not going to be Spielberg who's helming that. It's going to be James Mangold. Uh, I did enjoy uh, Ford versus Ferrari, so I'm really hoping that he can still bring some of that uh, flair for car sequences into the new movie. I saw the trailer, and it seems that we'll be seeing a bit of that as well. Awesome. Anything on the more indie side you're looking forward to keeping an eye out for? More On more indie side, Barbie Oppenheimer double feature. Yes, that would be an amazing double feature because it's the same weekend. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to that one. All right, Alex, uh, it's been an hour and a half. It's always good to cut, catch up as always. Um, any social media you want to plug? You know, where can people get a hold of you uh, if they want to if they want to chat film or you know see any any things you have? I know you have an IMD page, the IMDb page at this point uh, since you since you're a professional editor now. Um, I do, but I don't think people need to be guild members to have an IMDb page. What I would like to plug, though, is my Letterboxd account so that people can follow. My handle will be letterboxd.com slash A-A-T-I-E-N-Z-A. So that's A-A-T-I-E-N-Z-A. You can follow me there for my uh, reviews and my wit lists. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Uh, I'll definitely let people know whenever your film comes out. I definitely can't wait to see it and support Um Thanks again, Alex, for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure to just talk about movies. And, you know, hopefully, you know, you're on the East Coast. I'm on the East Coast. We said, you know, let's go to Philly sometime. and Let's catch a movie together. 
I'm going there tomorrow. So. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. All right. Well, I'll, I'll be there sometime this sometime in the coming months. So we'll, we'll catch each other then. For sure. Thank you. Thanks again to Alex for joining me once again this episode. Uh, I really enjoy his insight as a working professional in film and also as a friend. Um, you know, I uh, definitely hope that he can take me along to Cannes uh, next time he goes. Um, and in any case, I will link once again to his letterbox in the show notes. And of course, we'll be sure to share uh, on you know social medias and, and uh, in this feed when the film he mentioned editing comes out later this year. Um, so yeah, uh, next week we wrap out our three episode stint of looking at best picture contenders for this year by looking at films that mostly came out in December that I frankly couldn't talk about otherwise. Uh, with a member of the Academy of Death Racers Discord who has some fiery hot takes about one film in particular. Uh, we'll be talking about w- Woman Talking, Avatar The Way of Water, Babylon, and The Woman King. Um, that's next week, so we'll catch you then. Um, but in any case, that wraps up this episode of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know how you want the Death Race is going over on Twitter at OscarsDRacecast or email at OscarsDeathRacePodcast at gmail.com or in the community Discord. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. You can leave us a review there uh, or even just share with a friend who loves movies. Any of that is super helpful. Uh, those will be linked in the show notes alongside my Letterbox account under the username NinjaBoryBoy with an I. Uh, also, be sure again to check out the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddits, the Academy of Death Faces Discord, and OscarsDeathRace.com. Uh, music is provided by Kevin McLeod. His stuff is at Incompetent.Filmers.io. Editing production is by NinjaBoy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Until next time, I'll be here trying to watch all the Oscar nominees or die trying.